In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul says that we tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There's a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. Do you ever feel that tension? The tension of wanting to draw near to this holy God, yet at the same time to keep your distance. It's a tension that we see over and over again throughout the scriptures when fallen creatures come into the presence of the holy God. Moses encountered the fire of God's holiness in the burning bush and he took off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. Habakkuk was confronted with the majesty of God and he said that his legs trembled beneath him. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord and he fell down on his face. Isaiah was brought into the very throne room of the living God and he was completely undone. And in our passage this morning, Peter will experience firsthand the glory and the majesty and the holiness of Jesus Christ. So let's read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the very words of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, (laughs) to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. In our passage here in Luke chapter 5, we see that the majesty of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus empower us for the mission of Jesus. So we'll see the majesty and the mercy and the mission of Jesus here in our passage. So we'll begin by looking at 
the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we get into this text, I think that Luke intentionally wants us to connect the dots between Peter's encounter with Jesus and Isaiah's encounter with Yahweh. In chapter 4, Luke was clear that Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of Scripture, specifically fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6 because it deepens our understanding of Luke chapter 5. So Isaiah 6 will be up on the screen. We can keep our Bibles in, in Luke But Isaiah 6, this is 700 years before this incident between Jesus and Simon Peter on the lake. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. (laughs) Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's Isaiah. He saw something astounding. And he responded with fear and trembling. And in Luke chapter 5, we see something so similar, don't we? Peter saw something utterly amazing. And he responded with fear and trembling. Both Isaiah and Peter saw something amazing. And both of them responded with fear. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. Depart from me. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Their responses are so similar, but the situations are so different. Isaiah saw a vision of heaven. He saw the Lord high and lifted up and enthroned. He saw the heavenly host singing, holy, holy, holy. Peter, on the other hand, he was on the the lake of Gennesaret, the, the Sea of Galilee, when he saw a rabbi from Nazareth teaching a large crowd, so large that he had to go out into his boat to teach. He had just finished an unsuccessful night of fishing. No doubt he was exhausted. He was discouraged. He worked an entire night shift of grueling physical labor for nothing. And now this rabbi, this teacher is telling him to go back out in the water and put in his nets one more time. Now at this point, Peter had heard Jesus teach. He had actually seen him heal his own mother-in-law. But fishing, this is Peter's expertise. Peter might not know the scriptures like Jesus does. He knows fishing. Surely, in his mind, he knows better. 
even if this rabbi is a miracle worker. So with, with low expectations, he steps out in faith and then imagine his utter shock when he gets the largest catch of fish he's ever had. It's miraculous. There are so many fish that the nets started to break and the boats started to sink. Unbelievable, unreal. Now to compare, Isaiah and Peter both saw something amazing, but Isaiah's experience was heavenly and transcendent and divine. Peter's experience was was earthly and imminent and deeply human. So if their experiences were so seemingly different, why were their responses so similar? It's because Luke wants us to see what's really happening here. He wants us to ask the question, what did Peter see? In this moment, What did Peter see in Jesus that led to this kind of a fearful response? Luke wants it to be clear for us that in that moment on the boat, Peter saw that this Jewish rabbi is none other than the holy, holy, holy God come in the flesh. Peter realized that Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He is God incarnate. He had just seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law and heal the crowds and defeat demons, but now Jesus is demonstrating unbelievable power over the created order itself. Peter was a fisherman, but Jesus is the maker of the seas and all that's within them. Peter knew how to fish. But Jesus created the fish. There on the lake, surrounded by the noise of the crowds and the smell of fish, Peter recognized that he was in the presence of pure holiness. His boat had become holy ground. Peter saw with increased clarity, the majesty and the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. This moment was life-changing for Peter. The man that got off the boat wasn't the same man that got on the boat. He went from being Simon the fisherman to Peter the apostle. In an instant, his life was radically changed. And if you've ever wondered if change is possible in your life, real change, lasting change, if that's possible in your life, here is the answer from the Word of God. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We become like him as we behold his glory. That is, the more we see him, 
the more we become like him. So what did Peter see? He saw one small glimpse of glory and he was utterly transformed. So let's take a glimpse into the glorious majesty and excellency and splendor of God the Son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the head of the church and the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the heir of all things because all things were created by him, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. He was was the word in the beginning and the word was with God and the word was God and that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth he is the one who died and who is alive forevermore and he holds the keys of death and Hades and after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and he must reign until every enemy is made a footstool for his feet he is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him be glory and eternal dominion forever. Amen. What did Peter see? Majesty. And if we want to see real transformation in our lives, then we need to see a glimpse of this majestic Savior. But that transformation process isn't always easy. It isn't pain-free. It's costly. Because the more clearly we see the majesty of Jesus, the more clearly we'll see our own sin and guilt. Again, look at Peter's reaction to this majesty. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And it wasn't just him. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. They were astonished. But more than astonished, they were frightened. 
But if you were in Peter's shoes and you saw Jesus perform this miracle, would you have responded in the same way? Right? Because maybe you would have been overjoyed. Not maybe, probably. Right? As a fisherman, this is a pretty big career boost. You'd be pretty happy. But Peter responds differently. Surprisingly even, but he responds appropriately. He responds with fear. He says, get away from me. I can't be near you right now. I'm a sinful man in the presence of holiness. And again, his response, it's just like in Isaiah. When he saw the thrice holy God and he said, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm disintegrating. Both Peter and Isaiah realized that they were in the presence of pure 100% holiness. And at the same time, they realized just how unholy they actually were. They encountered the holy. And they needed to get as far away as possible because they realized they had offended the living God. And once we see Jesus clearly, as he is, we can finally start to see ourselves clearly. His glory is like a spotlight that exposes our guilt. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And as we make progress in the Christian life, this experience of our unworthiness and unholiness only becomes more acute. Think about Paul. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said that he was the least of the apostles. So of the 12 apostles, he's at the bottom of the list. And then later in life, in Ephesians, Paul said that he was the least of all the saints. So of all the Christians in the world, he's at the bottom. And at the end of his life, in 1 Timothy, he said that out of all sinners, he was the worst. So technically in that list, he's in the top. <laughs> he's the least of the apostles. He's the least of the saints. He's the sinner's chief. So the more he progressed in his Christian life throughout the years, the closer he got to the light, the more clearly he could see his own imperfections. And this is one aspect of our sanctification, of our growth and maturity in Christ. It's not just that we grow in obedience, though that is obviously really important. That's true. But we also grow in our perception and awareness of our own sin. The Puritans called this downward growth. That is, not only do we grow upward in holiness, in godliness, in Christ-likeness, but we also grow downward in humility and awareness of our own sinful actions and attitudes. As we grow in Christ, we grow in our sensitivity to sin. We grow in our hatred of sin. We grow in our honesty about our own sin. We grow in our repentance from sin. The closer you get to the light, the more deeply you'll feel your own inner darkness. 
Now, I've been a Christian for about 15 years. And when I first believed, I realized I needed a Savior, but I didn't realize just how much. I didn't realize just how bad my situation really was. And now, more than ever, I realize just how lost I was. Just how much indwelling sin is still here in my heart. And I still haven't scratched the surface. So what do we do? What do we do with this sense of inner darkness, with this burden of guilt? How can we handle the extreme weight of our sin against a holy God? How did I call this kind of growth a good thing? Because when we see our guilt clearly, that's when we can see the grace of God clearly. Because Peter didn't only experience the majesty of Jesus. He also experienced the mercy of Jesus. And so did Isaiah. Again, these passages are parallel. So think back to Isaiah 6. He's seen the holy God. He's been broken down in his sin. And then this happens. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isn't that good? As soon as Isaiah recognized his own guilt, he's met with loving kindness and tender mercy immediately. In that very moment, his guilt was taken away and his sin was atoned for. Isaiah experienced just the overflow of the grace and mercy of God. What about Peter? Look at the end of verse 10. And here these These simple, yet powerful and potent words. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, Simon had good reason to be afraid. He was an unholy man in the presence of the holy creator of the universe come in human flesh. He should be trembling. But Jesus gives him words of comfort. He gives him pure gospel. Peter, though you are rightly afraid, there's nothing to fear. Now, Peter didn't know it yet. But in in just a few more years, this holy one would be nailed to a cross to make atonement for his unholiness, for his sin, and for ours. So our response to Jesus is twofold. He is majestic. He is holy. So fear him. And he is merciful. So fear not. Jesus is majestic. So fear him. Tremble before him, fall at his knees, and he is merciful. So fear not. And this gives us such deep insight into the heart of God, who he is. Our God is holy, holy, holy. And our God is merciful, merciful, merciful. 
Our God is holy and righteous and just, and at the same time, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And as Psalm 23, verse 6 says, his mercy pursues us all the days of our lives. We see this in Peter, don't we? Right Throughout the Gospels, we see him screw up over and over again. And not just minor screw-ups. On the night of Christ's crucifixion, Peter denies his Lord not once, not twice, but three times. And we know from Luke chapter 5 that Peter, he was a changed man. And yet he never outgrew his desperate need for mercy. And neither do we. So what do you think Peter was thinking and feeling in those days following the crucifixion? Was he haunted by guilt and shame and regret and despair and self-loathing and humiliation? Well, in his mercy, Christ revealed himself to Peter in a beautifully personal way. Just after his resurrection, in John chapter 21, we see Peter and the other disciples going fishing again. And just like before, they haven't caught anything. It sounds familiar. And then a stranger on the shore tells them to cast in their nets to try just one more time. And lo and behold, they get another huge, miraculous catch of fish. And John looks at Peter and says, it's the Lord. Right? They knew what this meant. They knew who this was. And this time, Peter didn't want to get away from Jesus. He jumped in the sea and started swimming desperately towards him. He had to get to Jesus. Again, like R.C. Sproul said, sometimes we feel the need to get away from holiness, and sometimes we want to get close. And Peter lived in that tension, and we're invited to live in that tension. Peter knew he needed mercy. He had just seen his Lord crucified on his behalf, and he knew that Jesus' heart was filled to the brim with mercy for undeserving sinners. So on the shore, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Why? Peter's denial was threefold. And so Jesus' restoration of Peter was threefold. That is, Jesus' redemption is tailor-made to meet the personal details of Peter's failure. And Jesus' redemption is tailor-made to meet the personal details of your failure. Again, this was just like Isaiah. Isaiah had said that he was a man of unclean, Lips. And the angel takes a coal from the altar of sacrifice from the place of blood atonement and he applies it directly where? On his unclean lips. Jesus' redemption is tenderly personalized for each sinner to whom he chooses to show mercy. He is your Savior. And he applies his mercy directly to your specific sins and sorrows. 
goodness and mercy never stopped pursuing Peter. And that same tender mercy will pursue you all the days of your life. You can't outrun his mercy and you can't outsin his mercy. This mercy is not just a one-time event in our lives. Mercy is the air that we breathe. His mercies are new every morning. They're new every millisecond. I mean, don't you feel this? We just sang, our sins, they are many. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? But his mercy is more. If God doesn't show me mercy tomorrow morning, I'll wake up in hell. Period. Mercy is the life support system of the Christian. Without it, we're done for. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Praise God. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And if you're here and you don't know this Jesus, and you haven't, experienced his majesty and his mercy, then you're invited to come to him. If you're here today and you're listening to this message, that means Jesus in his mercy is pursuing you. You're here for a reason. And so this morning you can cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in that moment, you can rest assured that Jesus says directly to you, don't be afraid. Your sin is covered. Your guilt is taken away. Your debts are paid. Welcome home. There is more mercy in the heart of Christ than there is sin in your heart. And when we see both the majesty of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus come together in our redemption, it really does empower us and fuel us and energize us for the mission of Jesus. And this is the exact same dynamic that happens to both Isaiah and Peter. Again, they're intentionally similar. So let's look at how Isaiah responds to the majesty and the mercy of God. He said, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, this was Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet. But that's not very encouraging, is it? <laughs> a lot of times we stop in that passage of, Here I am, send me! And we don't continue with the rest. Isaiah is being sent by the Lord as a prophetic witness to the nation of Israel, but they're not going to listen. His ministry before the Lord must be faithful, but it's not going to be very fruitful in his day. 
And this is where the comparison between these two passages becomes more of a contrast. Listen to the words of Jesus to Peter at the end of verse 10 and into verse 11. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. (laughs) And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Isaiah was commissioned as a prophet. Peter here is commissioned as an apostle, but where Isaiah's ministry would be fruitless, Peter's would be fruitful. Isaiah brought a message of judgment, but Peter brings a message of grace. He was going to be a fisher of men. And I I think the ESV is a great translation. I just don't love it here. You'll be catching men. I like to go a little old school here. You'll be fishers of men. Because that's exactly what Peter was. Right? Just, just think about the day of Pentecost. Peter preached and he let down the nets of the gospel and 3,000 new believers piled into the boat of the church. He was still a fisherman. But now his specialty was catching people. He was fishing for souls. And look at verse 11, the very end of this passage, that in response to all of this, these men left everything and followed Jesus. Peter and James and John, they had just experienced the best fishing day in the history of fishing. It doesn't get better than this. And they left all of it behind to follow Jesus. Why? Why wouldn't they just take advantage of this situation and become the most successful fishing company in Galilee. That's probably what we would do. It's because they saw something better. More accurately, they saw someone better. They had seen a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus and they had tasted just a drop of the mercy of Jesus and they left the biggest, most lucrative catch of their lifetime. They left everything to follow this Jesus. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Peter left everything and followed Jesus. And Jesus led these men to join his mission to seek and to save the lost. Peter had experienced something amazing. And now he gets to share that good news with everyone he meets. And it really is both Jesus' majesty and his mercy that motivates us to become fishers of men. If we have seen his majesty, we want others to see it too. If we've experienced his mercy, we want others to experience that same mercy. Jesus, the holy fisherman, has caught us. So we want to go fishing for others. He, even in all of his majestic holiness, he was merciful to us when we were lost. And so he can reshape our hearts to become merciful to those around us who are still lost. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we share our faith. This is why we make disciples. This is why we send missionaries. This is why we plant churches. Jesus has called us to leave everything and become a fisher of men. Now maybe for you, 
the Lord is calling you to literally leave everything, leave your home and follow him to the nations. Maybe he's calling you to, to leave here and go serve him on the mission field as a missionary or an evangelist or a church planner or a Bible translator. If so, praise God. Or maybe he's calling you to stay right here and reach your neighbors with the message of Christ. So I want you to think about someone in your life that needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Maybe it's someone you've shared the gospel with a countless number of times. It, maybe it's been years, even decades, and they just don't seem to care about Jesus. It is so easy to grow tired and give up. Or maybe it's someone who you've never shared the gospel with because it's just frightening. Right? And you think, ah, they probably won't want to listen and I won't know what to say. I'll mess it up. And they might reject the gospel and they might reject me. That's terrifying. Sometimes it's hard to even get started. Maybe it was someone who sat across from you at the Thanksgiving table this past week. And you know that you need to have a conversation with them about Jesus. So what can you do? What can you do if you feel the difficulty and the discouragement and the fear that can come along with sharing your faith in Jesus? Well, let's think about Peter's experience here. He had an unsuccessful night of fishing. Nothing happened. It was a lot of work for little to no results. Do any of you feel that way with evangelism? But Jesus told him to put down his nets one more time. And you can, you can hear Peter's exhausted faith as he reluctantly agrees to Jesus' request. We've been trying all night, Jesus. We've caught nothing but at your word. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And that small act of faith, that small act of obedience led to a miraculous catch of fish. If you've been trying to share the gospel and you've seen little to no fruit, if you've been wanting to share the gospel with someone but can't even bring yourself to do it, Peter's example here shows us what it looks like to become a fisher of men. It's not in our power, it's in his. Even when it looks hopeless, just let down your nets. Just open your mouth. Just start talking about Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, but let down your nets and Jesus will fill them in due time. It's not our job to save anyone. We can't. That's Jesus' job. It is our job, though, to tell others about him, to share that good news, to be a witness. We let down the nets, and Jesus provides the fish. We speak the truth in love, and Jesus changes hearts and lives. And don't you realize, we're fishing in a stocked pond. His word will not return to him void. 
So we can say with Peter, I, I've tried. I've failed. But at your word, I let down the nets of the gospel one more time. And then you can sit back and watch what Jesus will do through you as his redemptive fisherman. Because when we see the majesty of Jesus and when we experience the mercy of Jesus, we are empowered for the mission of Jesus. To him and to him alone be all glory, both here and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you all the glory. You are the majestic God. You are the holy God. You are the righteous God. You are the just God. You are the glorious God. We can't even come close to comprehending your excellencies. But we thank you that you have shown us mercy. You have said to us, don't be afraid. Your sin is taken away and your guilt is atoned for. Father, I pray for those here that might not know you, I pray that even right now, this very moment, would you show them mercy just as you've shown us mercy. And for those of us who are recipients of your mercy, Help us to be led into deeper worship and deeper trust and deeper adoration at who you are and what you've done for us. And lead us on your mission. Help us to become fishers of men. This world is lost and dark and dying, and we have a message of hope. Please empower us by your spirit to go and bring the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, to this dying world. We pray this for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.